Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya and this is episode number 39. Like I mentioned in the last episode's intro, I've been working on doing music and sound design on the Oh My Dog podcast, which has been really fun and is also taking up a lot of time. So Hearsay has taken a little bit of a backseat lately, but I have loads of really interesting interviews coming up, so I'm looking forward to sharing those with you very soon. As always, I've been loving getting all of your messages on Instagram and Facebook, so please keep them coming. I really love hearing from you and uh, getting your suggestions and feedback. My guest today is the amazing Jen Cloer. Jen has had a massive couple of years with her last self-titled album, Going Gangbusters. Uh, She's been touring around Australia and overseas and, of course, managing Milk Records. We had a great chat at her house in Melbourne while I was visiting earlier this year uh, and covered a lot of serious and also very silly subjects. Uh, We actually talked a bit about how she mixed her last record at Wilco Studio in Chicago and it has just been announced that she'll be supporting Jeff Tweedy on his first solo tour of Australia in May this year. So make sure you go along to those shows because I'm sure they'll be incredibly special and what a great match. Uh, Jen's hilarious story was illustrated by Jen Shalakis, who is not only an integral part of this story, but also an integral part of Jen's band, having played with her for many, many years. She also plays drums in East Brunswick All Girls Choir, The Orb Weavers and Alibada. Remember, you can see all of these drawings on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Uh, Rate and leave a comment on iTunes if you like. It helps people be able to find the podcast, which is nice. Uh, And it also gives me warm feelings, which is also nice. (laughs) Here we go. Hearsay episode number 39, Jen Cloer. So this is the first time I've ever had like a problem with recording and we've had to start again. But you just ran down to the shop and got some batteries I and did. quick sticks. I felt like um like in the movies, you know, when people have like erectile dysfunctions and they're like, <laughs> this yeah. never happens. It's never happened to me. <laughs> and you were really like, it's you were so kind. I can see how organised you are. You've got all the things and um, you were here on time even though you had trouble finding the door to the house um so i just i'd believe you i believe you that you haven't run out of juice on your little player before you know, you know what does happen and this happens to me i'd say 98 percent of interviews is that we talk a lot about our feelings beforehand and then it doesn't leave much time for the interview which we've also done we spent about an hour just talking, talking about, about my feelings. feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you got to talk about your feelings. I mean, you got to kind of talk about past events in the mm. context of how I'm feeling at the moment. Yeah. Which is lovely. It's yeah. uh it just kind of keeps you connected to the sense that we're all very similar. Of course. It's the human condition. The human condition. Yeah. Um so I feel like we've already you know we've covered everything already so thanks for <laughs> thanks for chatting <laughs> can we talk about 
how you began loving music? Well, I think my first kind of obsession was with a a vinyl LP of Peter and the Wolf that was narrated by Leonard Bernstein or Bernstein, however you say it, uh, that my parents I think must have bought for me or a family friend or... Um, and I became obsessed with it and I'd sit and listen to it every um, every day after dinner apparently. Oh, and so cute. Kind of cute but also like pretty dark tale. Yeah, I, you know, I had the tape of Peter and the Wolf mm. and I listened to it a bunch too when I was a kid. Mm. Have you seen the new Blade Runner film? No. There's um, a tiny snippet. Just the da, 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 da. I think that's it. Um, and it happens every time he emanates his girlfriend, I think. Wow. Um, I don't know what the meaning behind that is, but mm. it it made me react. Every time I listened to it, I, I had this weird like, whoa, it's my childhood feeling. Yeah. It is. It's like when you hear those things that you listen to as a child, it has a profound kind of connection, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you ever listen to Peter and the Wolf now? I have listened to it maybe a couple of years ago, uh, a copy of David Bowie actually also narrated a version of it, um, turned up in the house. And so I listened to it and wept. Oh. It just, I was like, had no idea it was going to have this huge emotional effect on me. But I hadn't listened to it since childhood and so I think it just like, yeah, I don't know, just I, and, and it wasn't that I felt sad or just, yeah, I just started crying. Just emotional. Yeah. Do you think that's maybe just a connection to your parents maybe? I think it definitely, yeah, it would definitely be just that kind of sense of, you know, yeah, growing up in Adelaide and listening to Peter and the Wolf and my parents and all of that stuff. Yeah. Just sort of brought it all back, I think. Yeah, Mm. I can definitely relate to that. I always Mm. get emotional when I think about the past and there's actually nothing, you know, I haven't had grief like you've had grief, Mm. but I still get emotional Mm. about nostalgia. Yeah. Mm. I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about nostalgia is that, um, yeah, it's a sensory... It's a sensory memory. Um, <laughs> and uh, You should definitely write that down. I think I should maybe write a song called <laughs> Sensory Memory. But, you know, it's often used in acting uh, as a yeah. device to kind of bring you into a scene or a character in a way that is kind of tapping into the truth of your reality so that you can actually kind of mine that emotional um, space. Acting's kind of gross when you think about it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I often worry when I see <laughs> actors crying in movies, mm. I wonder where they've actually gone in their minds. Did you – so you studied acting. Did you ever um, learn how to make yourself cry or how to sort of reach into those oh, deep thoughts? I learnt but I had – zero ability (laughs) (laughs) I just I think like there were 
you know, actors in my class like Susie Porter who could just turn it on oh, like a she's tap. she's amazing. And like when I say turn it on like a tap, I mean like had access. Mm. Wasn't just – wasn't bullshit. Mm. Like it was real. Um, and she is an amazing actor. She is incredible. I'm watching her at the moment in Wentworth and like I love Wentworth. And she's just like – it's like when um, Pamela Rabe came in – and they just bring this fucking incredible, uh, I don't know, poise and focus into the scene and into the the whole show. Mm. And you just see everyone's game lift a little bit, you know, because they kind of bring everyone up with them. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I struggled a lot to, um, I think, yeah, I just was young and... It wasn't a strength. And actually, to be honest with you, because I wouldn't lie. Um, <laughs> Not to me. I think that was the thing that made me leave acting and pursue music was that I found it much easier to connect to my sort of written word and the emotion in singing um, than trying to find my way into a character and mine those deep emotional states that I just do not think I had any idea how to even access. I wasn't mm. ready. I was only 18, 19 when I went to NIDA. Like, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> When I look at people it? that age now, I'm like, what are you Babies. doing out on the street? What are, you do- what are you doing with a drink in your hand? Where are your mum and dad? <laughs> <laughs> but they think they're grown ups. That's the most important thing I think to remember is when I was 19, I thought I knew Everything. everything. You do. Yeah. You and do. now I realise I know nothing. <laughs> That's kind of the whole journey, I think, of life is just like, you know, when you hear really wise people saying, the older I get, the less I know. Yeah. And it's like, I think if you're living an open life and you're not kind of, you know, freaking out and closing down, mm. and if you live an open-hearted life, then that's what you discover. You know what you don't know. Exactly. Do you think that vacant people can write emotionally relatable songs? I think I think they can, but I think it always sits it sits at a surface level. So when you look at it lyrically, it can be quite smart and well put together. But there isn't a, a real vulnerability to it. Mm. And when I say real vulnerability, I mean the kind of writing that almost makes you feel embarrassed, which is the, the writing I'm most interested in. And when I say embarrassed, embarrassed is the writer. But I love it when I hear a songwriter, you know, disclosing information, you know, that is very, um, you know, it, it's quite a big thing to give away. And it's a gift because as the person listening, you all of a sudden kind of come out of that isolation or that belief that you're alone. Mm. But that said, I think like everyone's vibrating at different levels, right? So people who are going to, you know, go and listen to someone who's sort of writing at the surface level of their emotional journey and that's going to be what they're capable of and that's all good, then that's what those are the people they're going to attract. But then, you know, kind of as it drops in deeper and deeper and you actually find those writers who are actually coming from a from a place of a big life and a, and a big emotional life, um, they'll probably just be drawing different people into that That's true. circle. And I'm a real believer now that you kind of, 
you know, people go, oh, I don't like my audience. And you go, well, you drew them to you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I find that very, very fascinating. I ask people quite a lot about uh, their relationship with their audience. Um, I've been in your audience several times and I think you attract a very nice audience. Yeah. Have you ever had the oh no, who the fuck is that moment in your shows? Uh, only occasionally you might get someone who's really drunk and, yeah. you know, they just came along and had too much to drink and yeah. I'm just pouring tea. I'm not having a wee. Um, <laughs> just in we case anyone was wondering. We are doing this in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> it's my preferred place to <laughs> um, My morning ablutions. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I love my audience and, you know, the thing that I've really enjoyed watching, um, I went out and played Woodford festival recently and um the majority of the audience certainly down the front anyway were just like young women great who would have been like you know from the age of 16 to 25 and that's and up. great and it made me feel really um ah oh, just it just made me so happy because i just went there these these young women are listening like they haven't gone oh you know, yeah. this old fart up on the stage, you know, like <laughs> let's go and watch whatever one word artist is out at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I love my audience and I really, the great thing about touring my most recent album, which I think, you know, I really did try and give people, you know, the most of myself in that record and 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 the challenge that I set myself there wasn't really a musical challenge it was a lyrical challenge which was that every sentence that I sang I needed to really believe that that was coming from my truth yeah um but but touring around the world like UK Europe the states and Australia um I loved all of my audiences like beautiful people like just really open really present Varied ages, um, men and women, gay and straight or whatever, you know. That's so nice. Yeah, it felt like it kind of – I think that's the other thing is like when you transcend fashion or whatever's popular at the moment or you transcend trying to be cool or to look a certain way or come across a certain way – and look, we all try to do that at the beginning sure. as we're finding ourselves. But I think when you grow past that, sort of initial superficial level as an artist um you know what you kind of you know get to discover and experience is is a real relationship with the audience and a real connection and something that um i do when i perform is look at people who are open like Mm. the people who are really there receiving it and it is such an intimate and beautiful moment. I agree. Um, it's so special. Yeah. And it's a complete stranger. Something that I realised when I was listening to your record for the first time, I thought um, I almost felt like I was reading someone's diary mm. because you are quite literal. I mean, there's definitely poetic moments on it. Mm. And, you know, and there's obviously a lot of Australia in it. And um, But I really love that feeling that I was – I knew you – in a way, mm. which I think is a really rare thing these days because everything's so um, disguised in, mm. in a way. 
Yeah. Um, is that something that you thought about when you were writing it? That's like immediately relatable? Yeah, I think so. And um, I really chose to kind of stay away from being too poetic um, on this album. I, and I just sort of wanted to kind of tell the clearest narrative that I could. Um, mainly because um, right now in my life I find that very moving. Mm. Um, you know, there's a few songwriters around that really, um, yeah, move me in that way. Um, Laura Jean, who's been on your podcast in the past, I think. Yes, or she's – I'm incredibly moved by her lyrics. Mm. Yeah. She te- she's very honest mm. as well. Mm. She is and um, I don't know, I was listening to that, uh, her most recent album, Devotion, uh, in Berlin actually in the middle of the year when I was going through a pretty big time and I was just travelling around on trains and it was so weird because it's such an Australian record if is, you're yeah. Australian. Yeah. Um, and it was just su- such a comfort and I really got – this was something that was really good for me to understand. I really understood how important music and art is mm. because it was saving my life those few days. Yeah. Like really kept me company. And when people write and say your music has changed my life or your music means so much to me, it got me through this time in my life where I was really struggling – in the past, I had a slightly like, oh, that's a bit over the top, you know, kind of response <laughs> yeah. to that. But I really got it listening to Laura's mm. record because I felt like she was reaching in and having a conversation with me. Yeah. And I have a new respect when people say that because they're, they're telling the truth. Yeah. I think I've felt the same way about Laura's record. Mm. I, and I always, I can't listen to it quietly. It has to be like blasting <laughs> in my ears. <laughs> So talking about people that um, that reach out to you, mm. I imagine that you talk a lot to queer people that are finding their voices and that are looking up to you as someone who obviously feels incredibly comfortable with their sexuality mm. and, you know, and you talk about it in your songs. Um, do you ever feel anxious being a spokesperson for the whole community? Well, not really. I mean, I guess I don't really see myself in that role um you know more than anything I think it's just like my songwriting being prepared to kind of open up a conversation around you know um I guess like gender queerness as well as as being um you know sexually um queer Mm. um but yeah I mean I feel like this is something that's really interesting is that, you know, I'm 45 now. So I grew up at a time where there was huge repression in Australia and you – I didn't tell anyone that, you know, I knew that I was gay right from, you know, day dot. In utero. Pretty much. Mm. Like there was never any question mark for me. Like, you know, I experimented and pashed boys and did all of the stuff but my heart wasn't in it. (laughs) (laughs) So disgusting. Um, Never again. Um, But, yeah, like you do all of the stuff and and I tried to pretend, you know, that I was into like, you know, boys at school just to be part of the girl gang because I was at an all-girls school before I got expelled from it. 
That's another story. Um, but, you know, I now see and, and this is – I just want to sort of like, you know, make a bit of a statement before I say this in that um, – well, I'll say it and then I'll explain it, is that I was non-binary for the first 25 years of my life in that I did not identify as male or female. And and kids could smell it. You know, they'd just walk up to me in the schoolyard and go, are you a boy or a girl? And I'd be yeah. like, uh, shut I'm up. A, well, I'm a girl, you know, that's yeah. that's how I've been born. And, 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 and so then also you're kind of taught in that exchange great shame because you're obviously not presenting in the right way you're not you know even if you wear a dress or do any of the stuff they can still sense kids can sense stuff like they know what's going on um and and you know then I kind of went through my teens you know not really able to share you know I lived in a homophobic environment my parents were not able to hold a space or understand any of that I knew that intuitively um, and so you have this very lonely kind of experience with your sexuality. I think people from my generation um, have have really had to struggle their way through and probably do quite a bit of work to be able to talk openly about it and feel kind of okay about where they are. But the thing that I did want to say about that non-binary comment is that I don't feel like if you're non-binary that the work is then to work out what gender you are one no, day. Of course not. So please anyone out there who is still, you know, working through their gender or have arrived at a place where they know that they are non-binary, do not for a second feel like I'm saying. And then I graduated to no, knowing no. that I was a woman. That was just your journey. That was my journey. Yeah. But it's such a, an interesting thing, isn't it? To it think is. that you can kind of that that gender can take that long yeah to land in i was a real tomboy Mm. but always identified as a girl but Mm. i was i remember being really jealous of boys when i was younger (laughs) and um especially like i (laughs) remembered a moment when i was probably like i want to say maybe i was six or seven and i used to hang out with a big boy group and everyone was pissing up against a wall literally (laughs) And I was like, well, this fucking sucks. I can't do this. I know. <laughs> and I was like, how lucky are they that they can piss up against a wall and I can't. So and I'm, I'd like to st- sort of take that as a metaphor for life. Like they've been pissing up against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's interesting. And did you, you call yourself John for a little while? Well, I had an alter ego where I would go into a shop um, and play video games as John because it was filled with, you know, boarders from a private boys' school um, and just to be in there as a girl was not yeah. an option. And oh, because wow. I looked very, like, you know, androgynous, they didn't question it. And I was 10 so I, and, yeah. and a really late bloomer, you know, so I just looked like a little guy. Cute. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I love that today, you know, people in their sort of teen, you know, teen years and early 20s and there's just like that space to mm. be who you are. And I just wonder, like, I wonder how my life might have looked like if if my sexuality and my growing up through my puberty had been affirmed yeah. and I was able to really 
feel into that and be supported and have the same experiences that my peers were having of having those early relationships and falling in love and having heartbreak like that none of that was happening to me yeah because it was too dangerous you know did you ever get to talk to your parents about it before they passed away well I mean you know I came out to them when I was about 19 um and they asked and said you know what's going on with your sexuality and and we had a conversation at the time and they were concerned and wondering if there was anything that could be done. Remembering my parents, you know, had me when they were 43, came yeah. from a very different time. So they just weren't equipped to have that kind of understanding or conversation. But I think like certainly my dad, I'm not sure if my mother ever, you know, fully accepted that in her heart. I think she was very disappointed that, you know, I wouldn't marry a man and have have all the children that she wished she'd had. But um, my dad certainly came full circle. I mean, he was a really incredible man, very liberal-minded, um, progressive, interesting, um, up for a conversation, just a cool guy. Yeah. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about – I mean, I obviously want to talk about your feelings – more than anything else, mm. but let's talk about songwriting first, mm. 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 <laughs> which is, you know, in, interspersed with feelings, obviously. Mm. Um, so you so you started loving Peter and the Wolf obsessively, mm. listening to it as a kid. Mm. Did you think that that made you want to play an instrument or was that just like a world you wanted to be part of? I think more than anything it kind of connected my brain with music. I think that neural psychology of, of the power of music in the brain. And So when did you start playing an instrument then? And was your first instrument guitar? Yeah, it wouldn't have been until I was 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I played a bit of piano by kind of um, force. <laughs> it wasn't like something. I think initially I was really enjoying it and then, you know, I had to sit exams and oh, that's terrible. All I did of that, that stuff. You're like, so why? Stressful. Why does that have to begin? You yeah. know, why can't we just let people play with something? And <laughs> so you never got into the music theory. Never. I, I and I still don't. You know, I still. I think a part of me has just refused. You know, to learn it and um, a bit like mathematics, like just this block. Yeah. This learning block comes up. Like oh, I don't know what that note is. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just started playing guitar when I was in my 20s and um, and then started to write songs throughout my 20s, my first songs, which were, some of them were good, most of them were pretty shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the end of my 20s, uh, around the sort of like 28, 29, I wrote my first album, yeah. Yeah. And how were you... Were you taking your life experience and putting them into lyrics? Were you being a bit more poetic? How were you? How were you writing lyrics? Uh, I think you know when you kind of listen to my first album, uh, it's it's very you know it's full of yearning. Yeah. You know, and I think kind of slightly emotionally mature. Like when I listen to it, you know, lots of yearning and longing and blah blah blah. And I think that really is kind of you know, maybe indicative of the teenhood that I didn't get to live. So I'm sort of living it out in my 20s, you know. Right. Um, it's better in your 20s. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it certainly brought something to some of the songs and there's kind of like some of the songs have got, you know, like kind of written from a character perspective and 
you can hear all my influences just banging around in there. It's a beautiful record. Like I'm, I'm, I still love it, and a lot of people connected with it. Yeah, it was quite interesting, and and still to this day. So there's obviously something in there that's working. But yeah, I think like that's kind of the example of like I was at this level up here on the surface and that's where I was, you know, and only through the practice of growing as a person do you grow as an artist. And I think that's sort of the thing, isn't it, is like, you know, um, sometimes you listen to an album and you have to wonder whether that person has a life worth commenting on. I was driving over here. I was listening to Gold FM (laughs) and... (laughs) I listened to um, two songs in a row that I was like, what the fuck? Uh, I Can't Dance by Genesis. <laughs> the fuck is that song about? <laughs> <laughs> That's just words that rhyme mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's a bit sexist. But, yeah, I'm a walking contradiction because I'm wearing a Prince T-shirt today. So Well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, it kind of opens up an interesting conversation there because... You know, there's so many songs that you can have an emotional connection with and then you look at the lyrics and just go, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Like, I can't believe I'm, what? That's what I'm singing. I thought it was this. And yeah, then you discover right. those <laughs> sorts of moments. And, and so it sort of says something, doesn't it, really? That, yeah. You know, the lyrics maybe deepen the effect over time. But I think initially people aren't really, they're probably just, I think, as when you're writing, you don't have a fully formed lyrical journey unless you've written a poem that then you, you then fit to music. But I think you're just going on a feeling, aren't you? You're just Definitely. like, oh, this feels like something. And I yeah. think, you know, as I've continued to write over the last 15 years or so is that I really trust now that feeling. Yeah. It's like it's the feeling where you want to return to that song again and again and again and continue to write it and continue to sort of explore it. Yeah. Well, what's your relationship like with, you know, with people like Prince or people like um, misogynist rap songs? Mm, Yeah. Can you enjoy them? Well, I mean, I do enjoy Prince. Yeah. And and to be honest, I, I think like I've never really got close enough to his music to listen to the lyrical content. Like you can kind of hear it. I remember going and seeing him play. Um and it was like the Purple Rain tour. Wow. Oh, was it the Doves Doves Cry tour? Anyway. Either way. It was in that golden period. It wasn't time. Purple Rain, it was later. It was it was the Doves Cry tour, I think. Anyway, it would, it would have been when I was about seventeen. Wow. So I don't know, well over twenty years ago. Well over. Do um, you remember thirty years ago? Do you remember how you felt after It was it was an incredible show. Um, and very dramatic. Yeah. Theatrical. He changed six times. Great. Um, there was a lot of like beds (laughs) coming up onto the stage (laughs) where he'd do these dances with like hot girls on the bed. Amazing. Um, and there was just a lot going on and, uh, it was a real show and it was really powerful. Yeah. But the thing about him is that, you know, his songwriting was so good. Yeah. That you can't, like, it, it's almost impossible to kind of avoid being moved by yeah, it on some I agree. level. But it does sometimes feel a bit gross 
Because yeah. he is sometimes really and gross. And he was pretty gross on stage. Like he did some stuff yeah. that was like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you as a 17-year-old androgynous Yeah. Person. I was just <laughs> like, like, whoa. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just recently read his ex-wife's memoir. Um, and it, it's an intense read. I lapped it up. Like I. Wow. I was so into it. It was like a soap opera. Wow. He, and did she just, was she brutalised by him? Yeah, absolutely brutalised. Um, it's an interesting read. I would highly recommend it to anyone just to see what kind of person he was. And the machine behind him mm. is unfathomable. Just how protected he was and how um, in charge of every person he was. Um you know, he would snap his fingers at 4am to jam and everyone would get out of bed and jam with him. It, yeah, it was really crazy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> imagine that waking up at 4am. <laughs> I have a song. <laughs> I need 17 people here in 10 minutes. <laughs> but it, but it, would seem, it would seem to me like control freak that he was. Like, would it be fair to say that he... He didn't have a great deal of peace and serenity. Well, yeah, I guess that's the thing. But he wasn't – it didn't sound like he craved it. He wanted mm. to be busy all the time. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah, that, yeah, that's a pretty crazy life that you can't even imagine uh, as a musician having. And I, I, I would presume that maybe only like two people in the world have ever had anything similar. Well, yeah. Um, not for me. No, not for me either. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> so what I can hear in your music <laughs> is um, a much bigger influence of some of the indie rock bands that I loved when I was growing up too, mm. like Pavement and Sonic Youth. Mm. Um, I even hear them in your guitar tones. Mm. Mm. Um, is that still something you think about, like that, you know, being influenced by that those formative years of mm. listening to... Alternative rock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it definitely um, would have would have been – I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like I didn't really know about Pavement until maybe um, – like I knew about Stephen Malkmus and then someone was like, oh, they were in a band called Pavement. They're oh, wow. really great. You should have a listen. I've got a really weird kind of – like there's sort of big holes. Yeah. Because I think like when I went into NIDA, it was like going into a nun, like, into, like <laughs> I became a, a nun. Um, <laughs> and I just wasn't listening to much then um, for that period. And then I kind of came out and started to listen to more music. But I don't have like this really kind of ordered, concise, you know, um, history of listening to music there's just been things and people that I've really connected with along the way but it's definitely been in the kind of like you know indie rock singer songwriter vein and you can hear it there in the songwriting and I think also like interestingly what you say about some of the tunings and the tones is really um, me having to go in search of a way to um, make sure that I don't keep playing the same stuff yeah um, and I think those bands 
um, particularly Sonic Youth, really played around with tunings. Yeah. Um, as maybe as a, as a similar way of just trying to find a new approach so that you're not just – because, again, your sensory memory will um, – kind of take you back to the same chord patterns and you can get really frustrated as a songwriter trying to break through, you know. So you'll hear people go, oh, I picked up a little keyboard that was weird or I changed, you know, I found a tuning or I started playing a different instrument Mm. um, as a way of keeping your songwriting fresh. Yeah, there's a song in every instrument and a song in every tuning. Exactly, yeah. So do you play around with your own tuning a lot? Yeah, well, I mean, I have about four guitars on stage with me because um, because I have lots of tunings that I, you know, alternate between and I don't want to try and play them on a proper yeah. guitar. I enjoy that, that the tone and the sound is different um, and I think that's kind of what differentiates perhaps some of my albums or songwriting is like people can't work out what the chords are yeah (laughs) and it's not because i'm the genius it's because i'm trying to find a new way to you know to write you are a little bit of a genius i'm a little (laughs) tiny bit of a genius um i also noticed the reference of i don't want to i don't think so yeah yeah i actually um well that was kind of an interesting thing where when i was writing that song i was like i can hear those words coming up through that tune but then what was great was because that song's really uh you know looking at how america arrived at its current government and you know i was really trying to understand it at the time uh, a couple of years ago when i was writing that song um and uh, that kept coming up in the song i was like and i went back and looked at that cool thing and uh and there's that moment where she kind of says you know, are you going to liberate us girls yeah. from white male corporate oppression? And I was like, bang. Word up. <laughs> Word up. Um, so, but also like how interesting that, you know, Kim Gordon's having that conversation 30 years mm. previous and this is the America that, you know, you know, we've arrived, you know, she's arrived at, yeah. you know, 30 years later she's living in America where – you know, a really reality TV star is the president of the yeah. United States and kind of really just such a uh, a symptom of the disease of America, what America has become. Yeah. Oh, that's I, – I like it. I like it in there. And it's also nice to hear something familiar in a song, mm. I think, that when that song obviously meant a lot to mm. me growing up. Mm. What a song. I know. Talk to me about um, mentoring young women. We talked a little bit about this off mic um, that I think you and I both have kind of a older sister kind of protective mm. Um, mm. vibe around young women coming up in the industry. Mm. Um, do you have a lot of people that turn to you for guidance? Not really, to be honest. Like, I, I, It's not like I kind of have people sort of emailing every week going, oh, I need I need some advice on, you know, this certain particular thing that's come up in my, my journey <laughs> as a musician. But, you know, I've been running workshops for the last eight years um, called I Manage My Music and it was kind of created as a way of, I guess, having a space where artists could just come and talk about how it really is. Mm. Just didn't feel like there was much in that kind of 
like there wasn't much of a forum for it. There were a few people doing it. Like it wasn't a new idea. You know, there was like John Butler, Claire Bowditch, like they all had sort of varying different um, kind of ways of, of talking about, you know, the really difficult stuff, which is like I have music, now what do I do? And I think that's the biggest quandary and the biggest challenge for most artists is, you know, how do I now take this thing that I've created out into the world? And it's scary, you mm. know, so. Have you always been self-managed? I have until a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, I spent about, I guess, you know, 13 years managing my own career and to varying degrees of, you know, sanity and yeah. and success but you know I learn a lot along the way what um, do you think what are your top three takeaways um sorry to put you on the spot. no no that's fine um top three takeaways I think is find your comrades find your community don't try and do it alone um don't go into debt that's a hard one yeah it's really hard but don't do it if you can. Like try and if you can try and find a sustainable way of creating a career right from the beginning, then you're not going to end up with just this big heavy debt, which doesn't make you want to create after a while. Yeah, because you just look at the debt and go, "What's the point?" Yeah, it's a heavy weight. Mm. And I think also like defining your level of success. You know which isn't something new, I didn't come up with that. But I remember actually, um, oh, what's his name, John, I forget his last name, but he manages like Missy Higgins and quite a few people, yeah, quite yeah. a famous music manager and he said it, you know, it's like define your level of success and then you can kind of make a plan based on that. So like if you want to stay at home and have a life and pets and, you know, you need that, then maybe you need to work out you know, what it looks like. But if yeah. you want to be like huge, big rock star touring around the world, then you probably need to, you know, work out how to make that happen so mm. you're not constantly envious of others who do. Yeah. Um, but I think those are the, yeah, the kind of main ones for me. Do you ever get people that are completely delusional in your workshops? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's hard to kind of really know because I'll be like, you know, there'll be 30 people in a room and, you know, it's a day. I don't really get a chance to kind of talk to them and feel into yeah. like where they're coming from. But you do see, uh, particularly when you go into like music schools and give tutorials and stuff, yeah. you just see how they have an idea of it, you know, and I go into those institutions and just say, you're not going to learn anything in here. Yeah. Um, you're here because your parents want you to be here because they're frightened about you having a career in music. I said where you're going to learn is going out there and taking risk after risk after risk. Yeah. And if you really want it, that's what you'll do. Yeah. But not many people who go through those institutions end up having a career anyway. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Well, they'd just be out. You know, the ones that do are the ones that kind of get in touch with Milk Records when they're 15 and as want to do an internship. Yeah. Um. And then, you know, pack boxes for a year and then find their own bands and then, like, they're in their early 20s and they're killing it. Yeah. But they're, they're hungry to just get into it, even if they're shy. That's There's right. There's something driving them toward it. Yeah. I remember I once did a some kind of managing workshop because I've always been self-managed and there was a guy in, in there that did um just gigs down the pub mm. he, was, he lived in the country and he just played 
covers on a like Friday night at the local pub, and he he was asking if anyone had Lee Kernigan's manager's number, and I just wanted to cry. It made me really really sad. Yeah, I mean it. It is sad, but it's kind of that thing of, I mean, I just really love to give people a big slice of reality Mm. and I think that's the kindest thing you can do and just pull them out of being a victim because I think there is a real sense when you're managing yourself of like it's all too hard and Mm. I'm giving up music. You know, I've felt that many times. But really what I've tried to kind of do is work in another way of like just do what you can put in the action, let go of the results and whatever will happen will happen. Yeah. And why are you creating anyway? Like are you creating to be famous? Um, that's okay if you are, like if that's the primary motivation. And I think for most people when they start it is. Sure. You know, like what does to be famous mean? Well, validation and love. So there's a deep, deep need that I think pulls most artists to that profession um, be- because maybe they weren't seen or validated at some stage in their life and so they need it. Definitely. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that as you evolve and grow through, you know, that very early sort of need for validation and approval that, you know, you're then left with a very interesting question, which is why am I doing this and what do I have to contribute and, you know, more than anything like why am I doing this for me? That's kind of the question at the end of the day. It's like, what am I getting out of this? Because you don't know what anyone else is going to get out of it. And I think it's a crock of shit if you're like, I'm just writing music to help other people. Like, <laughs> how do you know whether what you're going to write is going to help anyone? It might, yeah. like, ruin their lives. That's I mean, right. you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> like, I think really, like, it's that more thing like, why? No, no, no. Why are you writing for you? Like, what are you getting out of this? It has to be that. Otherwise, it's a crock of shit, right? What has pulled you out of those moments of quitting music? I think really at the end of the day, you know, songwriting is a huge mystery for me. And it's a connection with, um, you know, like surprise and and the unknown. And... um, and I think that's really why people create because you're constantly amazed at things that finally kind of take shape. You're kind of a magician in a way, you know, pulling things down from the sky or from your life experience and assembling it. And um, there's a great satisfaction because I labour hard. I'm not um, someone who just churns out songs and there are, pe- there are people who, who do. Yeah. Um, and I've met them bastards and they're good songs too um it's not like they're, they're not writing shit ones um but you know like for me it's not easy and so every time I kind of look down the barrel of another album you know like I've I haven't written a lot of albums I've put out four albums yeah. you know over a 15 year career that's you know that's not a lot of records like I've got contemporaries who have put out 10 you yeah. know over that yeah. period um but I don't care anymore, you know, because I just look at it and go, well, that's my process and, you know, by the time I have those songs and I'm playing them, I I would generally say 80% of them I'm really happy with and I'm enjoying playing and it mean, it's meaningful to me. How do you feel about playing old songs? Um, look, it, I love it if, if I still get something out of them, you know. I think, 
you know, the good ones last and you do, they do pop up in your set and people do have a response to them. And Do you feel the feelings again that you were feeling when you were writing them? Not at all. No. And I think that's the other thing that's interesting about writing songs is like I think you feel things at the time of writing them. And maybe you feel something the first few times that you play it. Um, and and certainly there might be a sense of nostalgia when you come back to a song and go, oh, that's right, you know, that's what I was going through at that time in my life. For. But when you're on stage, I think it would be peculiar if you were re-feeling the song every time you played it. Yeah. I guess it depends what kind of song it is mm. um, and what kind of artist you are. Like if... True. I wonder if... Like Whitney Houston got really <laughs> emotional every time she sang I Will Always Love You and what that was about. I was just trying to think of the most powerful song I could think of That's right That's a really powerful song. <laughs> Look, I mean, who knows? I, I, I just don't think I could do an hour of re-feeling oh, no. every song on that set list and like because of the material yeah. it's like. I'd just be dead by the end of oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd have to, like, take me out on a stretcher. <laughs> she well, sung yeah, par- parents dead. <laughs> yep. Dead parent songs. Couple of relationships that failed. Um. <laughs> yeah, I guess as your situation changes, it's um, it's interesting to revisit those songs. Mm. Um, mm. I find that too. But, you know, not that my songs are – my songs are pretty cryptic, so it's a bit mm. different. mm um, something I did want to talk to you about because I actually have a song about Jeff Tweedy singing love songs at the end of my bed, but you would never know that it was about him, but that's what it was for me. When did you write it? I wrote it probably in 2008. Peak. Um, and you got to mix in Jeff's studio. I got to sit where Jeff has sat oh. and touch the side of the couch where his hand would have rained. See, my song isn't sexual. It's it's just that I love him. <laughs> <laughs> I love him in a totally no, non-sexual <laughs> way. <laughs> no, it's just that I love his songs and I think mm. and I love his voice. Mm. I don't want him to sit on the edge of my bed and sing me songs sexually. I just want no. him to No. to sing you me just to want sleep him to sing you some love songs. Yeah. <laughs> songs of love. Did you um, tell me about working in that studio? I've never been, but I've heard it. I've got loads of friends who have recorded there, and yeah, right. Um, it sounds amazing. It is. It's a really. Um, I mean, it's kind of like walking into a music history museum, you know, with a Chicago kind of flavour to it. He's obviously a collector. Yeah, you know, he's he's really keen on having lots of amps and lo- and sort of from certain eras and that real collector's kind of delight in, oh, I finally found the blah, blah, blah. That's what it feels like anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really um, I really enjoyed being in that space. It felt like a real privilege as well because it's clearly where, you know, he spends most of his days when he's not touring. Um, but what I love the most was like there's just this sort of small – mixing area where the desk is and and his in-house engineer tom schick who i love um who mixed my most recent album um sort of sits in there and uh and there's like this couch and then there's just like 
I don't know, like an SM58 or whatever, like a, I don't know the term, but just like an everyday microphone that like you'd find. Like what we're holding. Exactly. This, like, is, this is an SM58. What we're holding, <laughs> but kind of even a little less flash, like okay. these are quite flash. <laughs> um, and then there was just like a kind of lead and um, for a guitar. And, uh, and Tom was like, oh, yeah, um, Jeff just records everything on that couch seat. Oh. So he just sits there in the mixing console and just sings into a shitty mic. Great. Those amazing vocal takes. Like there's none of that kind of like and here's his pristine vocal room and this is all of the mic selections. Like there's something very kind of like workhorse about yeah. his approach. And I think the thing that I – I mean I love Jeff's songwriting and um, yeah, he's really – yeah, his voice is distinctive and he's he's just a, a really natural songwriter and I, I've loved seeing Wilco live when I've yeah, seen him me live too. and it's a really powerful Though All of those band. musicians are just, are just next level. So good and yeah. together like they really deliver something quite extraordinary and um, but, but I think like it really kind of hit me just how he's always writing. Yeah, like, it's, it's a job. Always. Always yeah. writing and, um, you know, I don't think everyone's like that. Do you sort of just write when the moment takes you or do you have to really sit down and try? Yeah, look, I just sit down, you know. I sit down and um, and I write for an hour, sometimes two hours. Um, when I have the time, I try and structure that time into my week and... Um, and just, you know, slowly, slowly, you know, it takes a good couple of years for me to put a record together, like on my own. Do you write on tour ever? Uh, no, no. I, I find that when I'm on tour, I'm just really trying to take care of myself and um, I'd rather be sitting in a sauna or <laughs> having a swim or going for a walk or eating a meal than writing a song. Yeah. It's not something that I go to do to kind of lose myself and relax and um, and great for people who do. But, yeah, it's, it's never really been like that for me. No. And I think when you're not um, – when you don't have people doing everything for you, mm. you can't relax on tour. And I imagine you probably mm. mostly tour manage yourself or – Yeah. I mean yeah. it's really only been – this album where I've had to have someone tour managing yeah. on the road because there's just no way I could have navigated my way around. Yeah. But even then you're like long days driving, load in, play a gig, yeah. come back to the hotel room, get up again in the morning and off you go. So yeah. just the time isn't there. That's fucked sometimes. Mm. Sometimes it's really fun too. Yeah. I mean I but really it enjoy it. Yeah. I, I, I was surprised at how much I was enjoying it. Mm. I thought I was going to like, oh, I'll be too much. I loved it and I got real tour stamina. Yeah. You know, as I went along and um it was a really new experience. It it was like bucket list material, like, you know, I'd never played overseas and yeah. here I was playing to rooms, you know, full of people. That's amazing. It was a real like moment, you know, and um and I don't care if it ever happens again. Like it just <laughs> happened, you know, it just yeah. this, the planets aligned and this album came out and it just everything was seemed to be there to project you know, propel it forward and I just went with it and enjoyed it and I, I certainly haven't been going, right, now I've really carved out a path for myself in, uh, <laughs> you know, North America and uh, <laughs> now we're strategising to work out, you know, like I don't think that 
you know. No. It needs to be like You don't that. need that in your life. That's pressure. Yeah, and it's also like, what does it matter? Yeah. Like, does it really matter? I mean... Do you think about work as in milk records a lot when you're on tour though? Can you ever fully let that go to concentrate on music? Yeah. No, That I think that's the other thing is like the majority of my time was spent on tour managing other people's releases and you know that was a role that I took on willingly knowing that I needed to really oversee that to understand whether Milk could kind of step up to the next level and Mm. start working with other labels and sub labels and become more of a serious kind of label not just you know putting something up on Bandcamp and sending out a post on social media which it had been for many years prior and uh yeah, so kind of over the last couple of years I tried to sort of see where milk could go. Um, but, yeah, it did mean – it's just meant that I've, you know, I've, it, like like most musicians, you know, I've had to work another job. Yeah. Um, and at least it's it's been related to music and it's been related to building something that I'm a part of. Mm. Um, and I get to enjoy the fruits of seeing – myself and others albums or songs or whatever connect with an audience and so it's been a hugely um uh like one of the great sort of experiences of my life has been um you know founding that label with Courtney yeah um and actually we're currently uh advertising the role I saw this yeah the label manager that's right so this year marks the year where I sort of step aside and um and really kind of give myself, I think, like a bit of time out. Yeah. And hopefully that will translate or maybe it will translate into writing more or being more creative or not. Maybe yeah. I'll just be like, sweet, I'm just going to like climb mountains for two years. I don't <laughs> that know. That sounds great too. But just being free of that responsibility because it is a huge responsibility to I carry your friends, you know, they become your friends, obviously, yeah. their albums and their hopes and their dreams and you just want to do the best and... Um, Do you know, think some people have been disappointed with? I don't their think so. I, I, I mean, you. I guess you, they're never going to tell you, but I just think the the kind of bands and artists that we work with live in a very real kind of frame of mind, and they can see how hard we work. Mm. And and I really just try to say, you know, like all you can do is all the stuff that you're doing. And if it doesn't connect or go any further, it's not because you didn't create something great. It's just that it happens all the time. Yeah. Like music is overlooked and releases are not heard or seen That's by right. a bigger audience. And, you know, welcome to the world of making art, you know. Yeah. Do you think you'll have trouble letting go? Um, it's a funny one, isn't it? Like I think initially when I sort of thought about that, I did – uh wonder like I thought oh it's you know it's been a real process it's been a real process of kind of slowly like loosening the grip and just slowly letting go of it and I think now I'm at a at a place where I'm like I put in a really solid seven years with that label Mm. um I built a really solid foundation I've left it in great shape financially and whatever happens now has got nothing to do with me that's so great yeah so if it sinks or swims um, it's got nothing to do with me. Yeah. You know. That's a great place to be mm. emotionally. Yeah, it is, you know, and I'll do my best, you know, if we can find someone, I'll do my best to help them and yeah, 
and it's really up to them to kind of take it forward and yeah bring their Exciting. own bring their own set of skills and talents to it for sure mm. so i want to ask you my last question yes. which is the question that i ask everyone i'm very excited about your story yes um tell me your either the strangest show experience or the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music so um in 2008 I was actually living in New Zealand. I'd gone back to New Zealand beginning of 2007 to live with my parents and help them because my mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and my dad really needed support and help and so I went to New Zealand and lived with them and sort of helped them through the next sort of stages of their life and, you know, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But I was writing an album at that time, my second album, and um, I came back to Melbourne to demo um, a whole bunch of songs with um, The Endless Sea, which was my band at that time. Uh, so there was Michael Hubbard on guitar, Jeffrey Dunbar on bass, Jen Chalakis on drums, Biddy Connor on viola. It was a huge band. Yeah. Um, Laura Jean on keys and Laura was also producing the album and um, Tom Healy, who's in t- Tiny Ruins, yeah. a New Zealand artist. Huge band. Also on guitar. Um, and so uh, we're all we, – we were actually rehearsing at this studio that's no longer there but I can't, I can't believe I've forgotten the name of it. But it, it was sort of just behind um, Smith Street, sort of tucked in the sort of like Fitzroy, Collingwood kind of area. And it was run by these three beautiful Greek brothers um, who were all vegetarian. Great. Which I thought was interesting because yeah. they were sort of in their 50s, maybe 60s and to sort of meet men who were like yeah. had come from a culture of eating a lot of lamb. Um, it's like German vegetarians. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I just always thought that was quite remarkable. Yeah. And they had this great space. It was really good for pre-production because um, it was just one big room and then there was like a courtyard undercover and it had like a little coffee machine, like a proper coffee machine and you could sort of sit out there and there were no other bands there. So it was just your space for however long you wanted. You'd leave things set up overnight, come right. back. So a lot of people used it to record demos or even record albums um, and bring in their gear. And um, so we were in there one day and um, we'd been rehearsing a song called Fear is Like a Forest, which sort of had a rebirth recently when Kurt Vile and Courtney um, covered it for an album they put out yeah. last year. And uh, so we were rehearsing that song and... Um, then we like called a break and the boys all went out. So Jeff and Michael, Tom all went out into the um, courtyard and started making coffee. And and myself, Biddy, Laura and Jen Shalakis, um just stayed in mucking around. Like, And anyone who has grown up, um, you know, who grew up in that 80s listening to like, I don't know, whatever was on commercial radio or what, what, you know, like watching television video hits. So anyone who grew up in the, in the 80s, um, I'd, I'd say like kind of more mid to late 80s, would have come across an artist called Tony Childs. And Tony Childs has a really distinctive voice. Um, there's a kind of like terminology for it, which is quay. They have a quay to their voice. Um, and uh, <laughs> and um, Pearl Jam. The lead singer of Pearl Jam has it a little bit. Eddie. 
eddy. Yeah, it's kind of like a really like yeah, like yeah. they really bring in this. I think it's like really it's like connecting. It's a lot thing. It's a yeah with their core. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, but anyone who grew up in that time, probably like younger people's mothers, were really deeply into Tony Childs and. But I was just like older, so I, you know, was watching Tony. And she was like big during that period, like Lisa Stansfield, Margaret Ehrlich, maybe, um, oh, anyway, I can't remember all the people that were cruising around that time. But Tony Childs, really curly dark hair, like um, a real f- sort of force. And she had this kind of like distinctive voice. Yeah. Um, and her big songs were like, um, stop. You're fussing, boy, you know, and she'd just like bring that quay into it. Or like, um, don't walk away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. It was like a big <laughs> voice and really distinctive and great songs, you know, they were like hits. Yeah. Um, anyway, we were singing Fear is Like a Forest in a Tony Childs esque voice because it was really fun. So yeah. we were like, Fear is like a forest. <laughs> Dark as the unknown. And like we were doing it all together. So like Laura and myself and like just mucking around and yeah. being idiots and laughing and just yeah, yeah. like you would do with, I don't know, Bob Dylan or anyone. So yeah. it wasn't like, I guess I just want to sort of like say that it wasn't. You weren't dark. It wasn't fun. mean. It yeah. wasn't mean. It you was just like. Fun. You were just doing impersonations of someone with a powerful voice. Exactly. Like if you did a Prince voice or a yeah. Neil Young voice, whatever. Sure. Like it was just fun. It was it, it. <laughs> it wasn't coming from a mean spirit. Yeah. Um, and anyway, um, then we got bored of that and we went out and had a coffee and then everyone came back in and we were sitting around and we were sort of like getting back into that song again to kind of work our way through it. And um, there was a knock at the door and I was waiting for um, our – uh, mandolin player to come like we had a lot of session players coming in <laughs> i really band. went all out i went all out <laughs> they were just doing a spot though on a right, song right. so i was waiting for the mandolin player to come in and um and i went to the door and one of the greek brothers was there um was there and um and he was like oh hey jen like lovely guy um yeah i'm really sorry to interrupt but um uh i've got someone here who's thinking of using the space um he's like meet tony oh <gasps> And Tony Childs was standing there. And I just want to say, like, she was not on tour. There was no, like, Tony's going to be here later today. <laughs> there were no posters up around town about Tony. Like, wow. it was she. And, like, five minutes after we had been. Serendipity. Ripping her off, basically. That's amazing. And she was like, hey. And I was like, oh, my. Like, I was Your in stomach shock. dropped. <laughs> I, well, it dropped, but there was also a gleefulness because yeah. I was like, I was like, come in, come in and have a listen. So Tony walked in and I just saw like, I just, I, I didn't see it. I felt Biddy, Laura and Jen just their heads spinning. And I said, sit down, we're just going to rehearse a song now. And so we like got into the song and... um. Remember that the boys had not heard anything. They'd been out. Yeah. Just making coffee. Sure. And so they were just like, great, Tony Childs is here, whoever she is. You know, they probably yeah. don't think they Whatever. even knew. <laughs> so we start doing Fears Like a Forest and like we'd, I, we'd just started, I'm like singing it and then I just started laughing <laughs> and I just said, 
oh my god i looked at michael who was like singing backing vocals i just went oh my god we always laugh in at this moment in the song (laughs) (laughs) to try and cover it up oh this is a bit where we always laugh really funny bit it's not we've never laughed in the song (laughs) and i was like oh my god i was like get it together and then i looked across the room and I just – Laura had her back to me because she's playing the piano and I just saw her shoulders like shaking, <laughs> shaking up and down. I was like, don't look at her, don't look at her. You'll start laughing, you'll start laughing. And then like I just kept playing and then I looked over at Shalaki and she was playing the drums but also wiping <laughs> tears, <laughs> just wiping tears from her eyes when like whenever she got the opportunity. And it was just like the – most bizarre hilarious moment so we finish the song and tony childs just springs up from her seat and just starts clapping wildly going oh my god that was so neil that was amazing i loved that song (laughs) (laughs) and we were just like wow thanks you're like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, like for the first bit I was like, I wonder if she heard us. Like with it. I hope yeah. she didn't hear us doing it. You yeah. know, like I felt really bad. You feel guilty, but then obviously she hadn't heard it. She hadn't heard it, you know. Wow. And if you're out there listening, Tony, like, please, <laughs> you know, I hope no hard feelings. Look, like there's ninety nine point nine percent chance she will never hear this. Well, there's but there's there's a ninety nine point nine percent chance but what do they say like imitation is the greatest form of flattery exactly um you have a distinctive voice tony and um (laughs) we started singing one of my songs with your vocal tone (laughs) and then you walked in we manifested tony collectively like we might like deep witch we didn't realize the power of the the coven me biddy laura the witch isn't she yeah me and laura just like called her in (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And thank you so much for having me over your beautiful house. Thanks. And um, I can't wait to see what you do next. Cheers.